The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner, or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs, and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. The Subversive Sounds of Silence In discussions about sexual abuse, incest, and rape, sometimes people assume that those offering preventative solutions are blaming the victim for what happened, rather than placing the responsibility correctly on the offender. This is sometimes hurtful to individuals who continue to experience the trauma and betrayal of the original incident. Too often, uninformed, although sometimes well-meaning people, state or imply that these victims should just get over it to get on with their lives. Well, why can't they? Well, the missing component is justice. While it's true that we cannot change the past, as a culture, we can and should reestablish the biblical means by which such situations are resolved and biblical sanctions applied. The sequence of events outlined in Genesis that led to man's separation from God have personal as well as societal implications and ramifications. Not only do we experience the consequences of our own sin, we're also recipients of the fallout from the sins of others. However, the good news is God did not leave us without remedy. Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice repaired our breach with God. This is the beginning of our life in Christ. But what about the interactions that make up the rest of our lives? Well, the law word of God is the means by which we establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. This remedy involves reinstating the protections of the family and sanctions for violating it and assaults against it, as outlined in the Word of God. One of the Bible verses most quoted by R.J. Rushduni is Proverbs 8.36, But he that sinneth against me wrongeth his own soul, all that hate me love death. Each step taken away from God and down the path of humanism results eventually in death. Making use of the God-ordained provisions, sanctions, and remedies is the only way to resolve the devastating effects of sin, from the personal to the societal. From the outset of human history, the institution of the family has been the primary area of dominion and calling, as well as protection and covering. It is in this setting that the foundations of a society are either built or destroyed. Men like Marx and Engels correctly identified the biblical family as an obstacle to their utopian vision. They and their proponents knew, however, that a direct assault would not be as effective as a systematic chipping away would be. The family has been under relentless attack for decades as humanists have tried to right wrongs they've attributed to the biblical family. 
But because they failed to identify the wrongs as sin, the blame then was placed on the biblical family for a host of injustices in society. And thus, we have come to a place where it's God's definition of family has been replaced with a new modern concoction. This not only will result in harm to the biblical family, but it will prove unhealthy to society as well. This attack is fervent because, as Rush Juni has noted, quote, in the Bible, the family is the most important and most public of all institutions, and adultery, treason against the family is punishable by death, whereas treason against the state is not mentioned. Sexual relations are thus strictly regulated by the Bible because they are crucial aspects of the most social and public of all institutions. The idea that whatever two consenting adults may choose to do is irrelevant to other men and to society is anti-biblical and revolutionary." Unquote. Yet this is the very message that permeates modern media, a message that made headway early on in the 20th century when the motion picture industry and marketing interests joined forces with humanistic psychology to undermine the biblical family. By promoting a battle between the sexes to advance an anti-biblical ideology, they undermined the protections of family life. But what exactly were they attacking? Here's what Rush Dooney says, quote, We cannot understand what scripture has to say about marriage without an appreciation of the theological dimensions of marriage. This is set forth in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. The key is submission in the fear of God, and this duty of submission applies to husbands as to wives. The husband cannot expect submission as unto the Lord unless he himself is subject to the Lord. His authority is at all times conditioned by the word of God and by his prior obedience to the word of God. His authority is not an abstract fact. It is headship in a union which makes of the two one flesh and is patterned after the unity between Christ and the true church." Unquote. Rather than depicting how men and women complemented each other to advance a dominion call in and through marriage, media highlighted women and men outside of their familial context. A woman's capabilities and intelligence were pitted against a man's, and a battle between the sexes was incited. Yet that is not how God designed the unique relationship between man and wife. Listen to this extensive quote from Rush Dooney. Quote, An insight into the significance of this relationship can be had by looking briefly at the varying natures of men and women. The differences between them are such that a single cell from a human body is identifiable as to its sex. Feminists hold that sexual differences are a product of social conditioning, making feminism a form of radical environmentalism. The fact is that the differences are basic and have nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. In fact, on the average, women equal or surpass men in all test areas not related to aggression and abstract reasoning. As Christians, we would term what anthropologists classify as aggression as dominion. Man's concern is with dominion and hence with status. 
Man insists on striving for dominion and on giving dominion status to what he does. A woman is a cook, a man a chef. A woman is called a scrub woman. The man calls his work a position as sanitary engineer, and so on. When men dominated the home, being a housewife had status. When men turned outward and left the home and children to women, being a housewife became demeaning and women began to revolt against their status. The areas of life and activity abandoned by men to women's dominion quickly lose status for men and women alike. Status is acquired by masculine dominion, and this fact governs every area. On the other hand, in the providence of God, women have been given excellence in areas other than dominion and abstract thought, so that they might be able associates or helpmeets to man. A man's thinking is abstract and wooden. He needs a woman's broader scope of intelligence and abilities to flesh out his perspective, which tends to be too abstract and too much geared to dominion to be always realistic. As a result, only a very stupid husband exercises dominion without the counsel of his wife. End quote. In God's economy, dominion is achieved through the combined efforts of the married couple. Since the goal and focus always was and is the kingdom of God, unity gives power to the family. Again, Rushduni, quote, In this unity of action as one flesh, as a life in common which gives power to the family as the central public institution, the man who acts as though his wife were only created to obey him denies the one flesh aspect of marriage and assumes the role of a bachelor exercising sexual and self-serving demands over a resident woman. Instead of a marriage, there is then simply cohabitation. It is the man's will, not God's public purpose concerning the family, which is then put into force. On the other hand, there cannot be a divided dominion. If the husband rules at his job and the wife at home, dominion is shattered. The man has abdicated, and his abdication will soon be apparent at work as well. Unquote. From the outset of the film industry, storylines highlighted discontent between the sexes as a means to draw in an eager audience. Under the guise of entertainment, there was a subtle promotion of individualistic competition and a disharmony of interests among men and women rather than a harmony of interests. Slowly but surely, sexuality became the focal point with women depicted as objects, often sexual objects, who needed to awaken to their second-class status and fight for their rights. Although subtle to the modern ear, innuendo and dialogue promoted this view. The sexual revolutionaries knew they had a captive audience and wasted no time to work to unravel the family. This is what Rushduni has to say about the sexual revolutionaries. The sexual revolutionaries, thus, are people who prefer irresponsibility to a future. Irresponsibility rather than pleasure is their keynote. But we must say first, there is true pleasure only in God's appointed way. And second, sexual revolutionaries are frenetic and pleasureless people whose basic motivation is a hatred of God, man, and of responsibility. Responsibility is not a private matter. It is always to someone or something. It is a social fact. Man's basic and ultimate responsibility is always to God. 
by attempting to convert sexuality into a private non-legal concern, the sexual revolutionary is trying thereby to remove sex from the area of responsibility. By doing so, he absolves himself from the charge of irresponsibility. He then transfers responsibility to the state and loudly proclaims himself a highly responsible citizen by clamoring for socialist action in one area after another." Unquote. One of the huge ironies of this push in the media is the impact it had on the lives of the women used to promote the image of the fiercely independent woman, who did not need a family and who was in total control of every aspect of her life. A recent article describes what went on in Hollywood with some of its most famous female stars. In the July 2016 issue of Vanity Fair, authors Marcy Bianco and Marin Johns in their article, Classic Hollywood Secret, Studios Wanted Their Stars to Have Abortions, shed some light as to why Tinseltown has been a strong advocate for abortion rights for women. As it turns out, abortion was, and I might add still is, a solution for those who purposed to profit from glamorizing women and portraying them as sexy, and available. To combat the results of promiscuity written into the contracts of many of the bombshells of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s were morality clauses, which guaranteed their willingness to end unintended pregnancies. This is what the article has to say. Quote, and so it became necessary for the studios to implement reformatory measures to prevent stars from destroying their value through scandal. In 1922, William H. Hayes collaborated with studios to introduce mandatory morality clauses into STARS contracts. Consequently, an unintended pregnancy would not only bring shame to these top box office earners, it would violate studio policy. It was a common assumption that glamorous stars would not be popular if they had children, writes Carrie Bocamp in her book on powerful women in old Hollywood, called Without Lying Down. These clauses may have extended to an actress's right to marry. According to Peterson, rumor had it that blonde bombshell Jean Harlow couldn't wed William Powell because MGM had written a clause into her contract forbidding her to marry. A wife couldn't be a bombshell, after all, could she? When Harlow became pregnant from the affair, she called MGM head of publicity Howard Strickling in a panic. Shortly thereafter, according to E.J. Fleming in her book, The Fixers, Eddie Mannix, Howard Strickling, and their MGM publicity machine, Jean Harlow, under the name Mrs. Jean Carpenter, entered Good Shepherd Hospital to get some rest. She was seen only by her private doctors and nurses in room A26, the same room she had incidentally occupied the year before for a supposed appendectomy, unquote. The list of bankable stars mentioned in the article, along with Jean Harlow, include Judy Garland, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Ava Gardner, Lana Turner, Dorothy Dandridge, and Jeanette McDonald. While these names are not on the tips of tongues today, they were in the golden age of Hollywood when film was demonstrating its usefulness in changing the culture and the religious views of audiences. Ironically, the films of these decades portrayed women as being independent and in control of their lives, not living at the whims of men. While the scripts espoused otherwise, their actresses were being abused physically, mentally, and spiritually. One anonymous actress noted, Abortions were our birth control. 
Another commented about the famous Tallulah Bankhead. She got abortions like other women got permanent waves. Many of these women, not to mention the other not-so-famous casualties, lived tragic lives, often attempting to cover their sins with alcohol or drugs and finding it difficult to remain in any committed relationship. Some ended their guilt with suicide. In fact, the rebels of the day, from movie studios' point of view, were those who refused to abort their unborn children because they correctly saw abortion as murder. Bianco and Johns in their article came to an unusual conclusion, one that demonstrates how people are governed by their presuppositions. This is what they concluded, quote, In the heyday of the Hollywood studio system, women were at their most desirable and their most powerful, but it still didn't afford them the right to choose when it came to governing their bodies. Hollywood's production codes extended to women's reproduction. In the hundred years or so that have passed since the birth of American cinema, everything has changed, though then again, perhaps nothing has." Unquote. You see, instead of realizing that God designed women to be protected and covered in a covenanted marital relationship, the authors lament that the denial of accessible abortion was a great injustice. This is ingrained in our culture, and now women who have fallen prey to empty words and manipulative seductions are offered solutions that are really not solutions at all. The Bible asks, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, apart from God and his law being known and applied, human beings will continue to place themselves under the curse of sin rather than respond to the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. We must work for a time when the capital offenses mentioned at the outset of this talk once again receive the God-ordained sanctions provided in Scripture for such treasonous acts. Only when justice, righteousness, of God's law is known and applied can individuals and families truly pursue the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, an obvious question remains. What do we do until that day when the commandments of God are followed on a societal level? The answer is to apply God's law word in your everyday life on an individual and family level right now. Teach God's word so that children know when they're being manipulated and groomed for abusive encounters. Teach them that they should have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness but expose them. Instruct them that God will never pit one of his mandates against another and that hiding a sin to protect others amounts to being an accomplice to it. Teach them how the institution of the biblical family is the protection and covering provided by God to create dominion-minded families. For those who have experienced not only the effects of such sexual abuse, rape, or incest, but have also received disdain from the church, God's law demands them to break their silence of real or imagined guilt and shame. Social ills such as sexual abuse and abortion can only exist when the people of God allow these tactics of the enemies of God to destroy the biblical family. When we refuse to sweep them under the rug and continue to unashamedly proclaim the supremacy of God's law, the pulpits and the courthouses will have to take notice. My name is Andrea Schwartz and I have been active in Christian education for over 35 years, having homeschooled my three children all the way through high school. Now that they are all graduated and grown, I spend my time mentoring women, helping them become the best teachers for their children. 
I hold online office hour meetings every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time using the Zoom platform. These get-togethers provide homeschooling moms the opportunity to ask questions and get advice in areas they may struggle with as they educate their children. And for those contemplating homeschooling, they can discover how to get started and stay the course. Each week, I will cover a specific area, but the bulk of the time will be spent addressing issues most pressing to you. These meetings are free, but you must register to participate. Search on Facebook for the event entitled Weekly Office Hours with Andrea Schwartz, and then click on Get Tickets. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth.